This episode of the Talk Hard podcast is brought to you by Trailer Skips Tasmania and Full Bore Skip Bins. If you're doing a bit of work around the house and you've got large amounts of waste items from household waste, green waste, building or renovation waste or heavy waste items and your piles are becoming bigger than Ben-Hur, give Dern a call to organise your trailer skip or full bore skip bin today. Trailer skips use a unique design incorporating a skip bin built into a trailer for easy removal and tipping. Or if it's a normal skip bin you need, a full bore skip bin will be the one for you. You don't even have to pick it up or dump it yourself. Dern will deliver it for you and he'll take it away and dump it. How good's that? Give him a call today on 0409 801 635. Trailer skips and full bore skip bins. Don't go the half job, go the full bore. Welcome back to the Talk Hard Podcast. Get ready for the ride. Here we go. My name's Briley. My name's Jake. My name's Penny. And this is our father, Brendan Hinkson's podcast called the Talk Hard Podcast. Yes, it is. It's not rocket science. Read the title. Oh, thanks for that, Jake. We've got some great people lined up for you guys. And we hope you enjoy. Our father will be blabbling a lot of shite. So if you do enjoy, leave a review. Like and subscribe. Grab your miso and enjoy the show. Thank you and enjoy. G'day, welcome to Series 2 of the Talk Hard Podcast. Can't wait to share some of the awesome guests we've got lined up for you, starting with this guy. Highly acclaimed, award-winning author, Kyle Perry. Kyle's a super engaging guy and he shares his story about perseverance and the single-mindedness, work ethic and belief it took him to finally achieve his goal of becoming a published author. And believe me, it took a hell of a lot of knockbacks and a long time for him to get there. It's inspirational. We chat about his youth growing up in Ridgely and the adventures he and his friends would get up to, mainly in the Tasmanian landscape, which is a key part of him and his writing. We speak about finding that work-life balance and going too far one way, which he did as a youth. We talk about youth work and drug and alcohol work, which is a great passion of both of ours. And he shares some intriguing stories about his time in the bush, including one time where had he not made a critical decision early on in the trip, he might not be here to share his gift with the world and tell the story. It's a great tale of how you need to trust your journey, trust your gut and keep grinding away to achieve your dreams. And I hope you enjoy the chat as much as I did. Don't forget guys, if you like the podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, all that techie cool stuff. Tell people about it. Certainly appreciate the people that have jumped on board so far. So hopefully we're getting a lot of good messages out there and helping a lot of people. Now over to the man of the moment, Kyle Perry. Righto guys, on today's show, very excited to say that we've got this guy. It has been a little bit of a process to get him. He's um, highly sought after these days, um, spending his time between Hobart and the northwest coast. Um, he sort of meets the the profile 100% of, of why we do this podcast because um, I've had a little bit of um, time with this guy myself and he just exudes happiness and a lot of positivity. I think he's described himself as the happiest man in Tasmania <laughs> on a number of occasions. Um He's an author, he's a drug and alcohol counsellor, which is um, close to my heart as well. Um, but most importantly, he's a great bloke, and I'm uh, very lucky to call him a mate. He's uh, probably the most famous mate I've got now, so <laughs> I'm going to ride on his coattails. But Kyle Perry, welcome to the Talk Hard podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. It's good to be here. Yeah, my pleasure, mate. Thanks for coming in. As people that listen to the podcast know, we usually go back to the beginning and, and find out a little bit about your life, and mm. yours is a really interesting journey. Um, I'll let you tell it, but I think it's a, it's a really good um, a really good story about persistence and you know not giving up on your dreams. So 
Um, but firstly, I just want to go back to, to where we actually met because we met, I think I marked it down the other day. I was having a bit of a think about it. It was about four or five years ago, I think, from memory. Um, do you remember how we met? I remember the first time I saw you was when I was working for the space program in Burnie and you yep. came in, was working with one of our lads. Yep. Um, we didn't have a conversation though. It wasn't, I don't think we had a conversation until a few months later. Yeah. Burnie High, maybe. I remember, yeah, it was through Burnie High because I remember you um, You just shot out an email. I don't know, I think you were just looking to expand your network and make a few connections and things like that and we organised a meeting and mm. I remember you came up to, to Devonport. and mm, That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, I don't know, I just, I just straight away, I just you were just someone that I wanted to be around more because, you know, I think we were sort of very like-minded mm. as far as, you know, our passion for helping young people at that yeah. stage. And, and you're just a good bloke, mate. Just loved hanging out with you, mate. So, yeah, we caught up a few more times after that. But as I, as I say, like, um, usually we just go back to the to the beginning. So you grew up in Ridgely, is mm. that right? Mm, yeah, Ridgely, yep. born and bred. Um, I see, and I was still living there, same house, when I was working at Space, when I met you. Yep. Yeah. Um, born 1991, lived uh, on the on the Ridgely, lived on the Ridgely Highway, uh, went to Ridgely Primary School, went to Parklands High School, Hellier College, all the northwest coast, and uh, spent, yeah, the first 26 years of my life kicking around the northwest coast. I mean, I, I went travelling, I think all, all up of... I spent three months in Africa. I spent about six months in Canada, and but other than that, yeah, stuck around the northwest coast my whole life. Yep, yep. And just from um, the beauty of, of of doing these podcasts is I get to do a lot of background research on people that I think I know pretty well, and <laughs> I certainly learn a hell of a lot more about them through through doing that. So I I read that the bush was a big part of your upbringing. You spent quite a lot of time in mm. the in the bush. Mm-hmm. So yep. where we lived in Ridgely. Even though um, we don't live on a farm, it backed on to a bunch of paddocks and then the paddocks led down into the bush, which then into a river. And so me and my best friend, Zach, just from up the road, used to spend, or even my next door neighbours too, would just go into the back paddocks all the time, up in the trees, and then would go down, would follow the, uh, the paddock down to the railway line and then past the railway line into the actual bush and then down, would follow rivers, would go exploring... I used to spend a lot of time um, even just going bushwalking too, uh, like Valentine's Peak, a lot of time at Cradle Mountain, um, up at the up at the Tears too, which is where my first book's based, but mainly just like the local stuff, like the Dial Ranges, heaps of bushwalks up there. Yep. But um, I mean, Ridgely's really scrubby. Guide Falls. Yeah. You, know, we just, yep. you can walk there from my place. It's a Beautiful big walk, spot. but you walk down there and just kick around and... I remember one time me and a few mates uh, went to Guide Falls and we were swimming up at the top falls, above the falls, and then we started following that, that river all the way in as far as we could. Man, that was fun. Yep. How long did it take you? Oh, man, I don't know. We were lazy, like lazy swimming in pools as we went and mm. just having a chat. But, I mean, we are going for, I reckon, four hours. Yep. That's a round trip. We were kept. We didn't know whose property we were on, you know. Yeah. So we're like, ah, <laughs> oh. And then we'd, every now and then we'd come to like a, a driveway or a road that would come down to the river, and we're like, oh, we better. Are we going too far? Nah, let's keep going. <laughs> didn't hear any gunshots or nah, anything. Like that. <laughs> no, no. 
It's a bit of a hairy one, isn't it? You don't know whose property you're wandering through. Yeah, uh, I mean, there was one time we found this waterfall. This is the other direction in Ridgely. Um, we followed the, I guess it's the Pet River. Um, and we remember we were young and walking. We walked down to the river. We are walking alongside it. And I was the eldest in the group, so I was pretty conscious of getting caught. Even though we are underage, I knew I wouldn't get into trouble too much, but I felt responsible. Yep. And we kept following this river, and it circles those people who know originally. It kind of circles around Matara Road, in a way. And, man, it was fun walking all the way down to where it turns into a bigger river, and then it was starting to get dark. And so me and Zach are like, we need to get... We need to get probably get back to the road. <laughs> We're yep. not going to follow this river. Yeah. So we we started crossing people's um, paddocks, and then I heard this car coming, like on this forestry road. And man, I booked it. <laughs> and Zach was fine; he wasn't scared at all. But man, I was I was pretty concerned of the repercussions. But yeah, it was good, and it definitely did something for me. Like coming back from school, getting out of your school clothes. Um, back then we didn't have phones, so I couldn't like text Zach and say, oh, I'll meet you in the paddock. It'd just be, you know, on the bus as we left school. All right, up at, you know, I'll be up at the treehouse soon. Yep. I'll be up at the paddock. And oh, man, it was, looking back, it was some of the best memories of my childhood yeah. was in the bush, up in the paddocks, up in the scrub. Isn't it funny? You look at, I don't know, kids today, like they seem to be more wrapped in, in cotton wool, which to a certain extent, is a good thing because you got to protect them but you know back in the day you know the sort of trouble and mischief you used to get into like i know you know you probably it could have turned out a little bit different a few of the things but you think what a great childhood i think it's a bit mm. of a rite of passage isn't it? a bit of risk taking and yeah a bit well, of- even just i was thinking about it because i didn't have a phone so if mum wanted me to mum wanted to get in contact with me there was no way mm. like she there was a few times i'd come to the back you know the back fence and shout my name yep other than that you know <laughs> and i i didn't see a tiger snake until i was about 21 years old yeah right. so as a kid i had no fear of snakes yeah you know, i wasn't concerned about falling in a hole i was just you know reckless and bulletproof and yeah. then it wasn't until i was older bushwalking i saw a snake that i suddenly thought man i could have <laughs> things could have ended these these things are out here Absolutely. they're everywhere yeah the joy of youth isn't it? it's nice to be oblivious sometimes isn't it yeah i think i think so i think so i think um like i said best memories just out there in the wild building tree houses climbing trees having fun it's uh and I keep getting these comments in my books, especially the bluffs and now that the deep's been out for a couple of weeks. A lot of people always want to have this conversation with me about how the landscape features in my writing. Yep. And the first time I was happy to answer it, I'm like, yeah, cool, great question. But it kept coming up and it took me, you know, it was fairly recently that I, I kind of realized, damn, this must be inside of me more than I realized because if people are picking it up that much if people are noticing this that much it must must be something inside of me that goes even deeper than i realized because yep. to me it was just normal to to feature the landscape as heavily as i did it was just normal to have my characters interplaying with the, with the tassie bush with the wilderness um speaking of the bush one thing that i did come across in my research it said that you've been lost in the mountains twice mm. is that correct and one time you ripped the pages off a journal and stuck it to a tree or something to, yeah. to find your way back out. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been more than twice, but they're the two that, when I was writing that bio, the ones I remember. <laughs> so that time I was, eight, uh, I would have been 21, no, 20, 
would have been 20 years old. Um, and I was just had itchy legs. I just needed to roam. So I just jumped in the car, just said, oh, Mum, I'm going for a drive. And I drove out down the West Coast and I just started driving. I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know what I was going to find. I just was, I was looking for adventure. I was looking for something. Yeah. And I drove past um, past the you know the finger post, past the turn off to sorry, past the turn off to Waratah. Went down there, um, past the I oh mean I can't remember the name of that that little toilet stop just past the Waratah turn off, but went down past there, just driving, and then I see this wooden sign on the side of the road that just says mountain. So that road down through the west coast, there's really thick scrub either side of the road. And I was just driving, thinking, oh, am I, am I going to Cradle? Is that where I'm going? Like, this is yep. the direction I'm headed. Yep. And then I see this wooden sign that just says mountain. I thought, that's cool. So I you know, turned around, went up that road, drove as far as I could, came to a fallen tree, couldn't go any further. So I parked the car, just got my backpack. Um, I didn't have, like, I think I just had a drink bottle and my journal and maybe a snow jacket. Jumped out, jumped over the fallen um, tree and just kept walking. I think I was in a forestry road. I was walking, 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 come to a corner, and I could see the peak of this mountain just over the top of the uh, of the bush. And I didn't know what mountain it was. wasn't familiar with the area. Um, didn't have my like. I don't think I had much reception, so I couldn't Google what it was. Yeah. And I thought I'm going up that mountain. <laughs> no matter yeah. what happens, I'm going up that mountain today. Yeah. But there was no. I didn't know where the path was, so I thought I'm just going to go through this scrub. So I took a few steps into the scrub and then I realized it became a swamp. And I thought, ah, this could be dicey, but I'm here for it. So I took my journal out and I'm like, I'm going to start ripping out pages and sticking them on twigs just Mm. as I was finding my way through this bush, through this uh, swamp. Eventually, I came out onto a button grass field. So I was okay. I'm like, yeah, cool. I'm on a button grass field. I can see what I'm doing, but I'm going to put a few more um, pieces of the journal here so I can find my way back. Mm. Set out across the button grass, climbed the mountain. Um, it was really, it was sick. It was like, uh, it was a great almost initiation. Get to the top, it's freaking steep. Having a, just having to rest. And then the sun starts to come down real quick. I reckon it must have best have been a storm coming in or something. And then I realized no one knows where I am. Mm. I don't really know where I am. The only path that I know that's going to get me back to the car before nightfall comes is that path through the swamp. Yeah, <laughs> I better get out of here while I can still see the yep. paper. Yeah, and I, I, um, so I raced down the mountain, ran across the button field grass, um, was scanning the side of the scrub to try and find it's that little piece of white paper. Yeah, finally I found it. And then I was, you know, the sun's going down and I'm, I'm creeping through this swamp just trying to spot these little pieces of my journal that I put there. Yep. Uh, came out onto the road and I'm like, oh, like, man, I'm safe. And then it was, Good it feeling. was pitch black as I walked down the forestry road. Yeah. So that was pretty scary because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, every noise, like it was, got back to the car and I felt like I just conquered the whole world. You yeah. Know? And I was like, yeah, man. I. I, I like, <laughs> So nowadays, when you go walking in the bush, you make sure you have fluoro glow in the dark pages in your journal. <laughs> I think I wouldn't. There's no way I'd do that again. I don't like. I've I've heard too many stories. I've I've been. It rattled me. Like it. It honestly rattled me more than I realized at the time. I was able to keep myself under control. I yep. just thought, no, just keep. I've done this a million times before. Like the bush is your friend. Um, just just big breaths. 
but yeah once I made it back to the car and made it home and had a bath the next day I'm like that could have ended Mm. far worse than it did yeah you do hear a lot of stories of people going missing don't you yeah you just you wonder how easily it does happen it it was it was quite a, a good idea at the time for you to, to think to, to get the pages of the journal out. It's a little bit like the Hansel and Gretel story, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of people would probably just tear off into the bush and not even think about that. So you had that foresight to at least do that. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I mean, what what I should have done was follow the road and there probably would have been a proper hiking track. Yep. And I thought, no, this is the shortest way as the crow flies. And then I realised that, oh, man, swamps are, they're tricky. You can get stuck you know, I mean, quicksands, it's not really the way it is in Hollywood, but you can still get, you know, you can get bogged and yeah. get stark and hypothermic. So, yeah, luckily I had a bit of foresight. And, but if I didn't have my journal in my bag, I probably just would have winged it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's where I'd be. I remember one time, actually, I was out at um, Sheffield with a young person and we were climbing a mountain and there were two different paths to get to the top of this mountain based on your experience as a, as a climber and a walker. And obviously there was a really easy one and there was a hard one more up the the face and of course kids being kids are like yeah let's do the hard one man that'll be awesome and they just had like the little tags um just on the yeah. trees um i think they were like orange or pink or something like that so we decided to go up this one and i'd done it before but we got halfway up and for whatever reason we lost track of the tags or we lost oh, yeah. or whether they'd gone missing i don't know but similar story it only just came to me then because then the sun started going down and i actually started to get really nervous one because i was responsible for this young person mm. we're halfway up a mountain so I ended up having to make the call. I knew that the two paths ran parallel to each other. So the one on this side, this is terrible radio, people can't see, but the one on the far <laughs> left was the easy one. Yeah. The one next to it was the one right up the face. And I knew this one on the left, if we just cut across, we would find it. So, yeah. But had I have not done that, I don't know where we would have ended up. We might have ended up, I don't know, we would have ended up anywhere at the back of Sheffield. But yeah, we just cut across and we were just walking through really dense scrubland, you know, yeah. getting cuts and bits yeah. and pieces on us. But we had to do it. And eventually yeah. we did find this other path. Yeah. Um, but it probably took us about an hour and a half. Oh, mate. Yeah. And and just when you were saying it, it rattled you like that. I, I you know, played it cool for him because I didn't want him to see that I was panicking. He was <laughs> loving it, by the way. Yeah, of course <laughs> it was. How cool. Adventure. Um, I thought, shit, this could turn really bad really quickly here because it, it was in the winter time. Because obviously, oh when, the, when the sun goes down early, it was about five thirty when it started going down. But yeah, we eventually found the path and got out. So I did relate to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, another thing that I I read through my research, and I don't know whether you can or you want to elaborate on this. It said that you've seen certain things in the bush that are really hard to explain. <laughs> Is that something that you talk about generally? Or no, no, I don't. I mentioned it in, um, so for your listeners' benefit, when you when you write a book, uh, when you've kind of got a, a public profile in the writing world, everyone wants a bio. So a bio is a short biography that you write down just about yourself and your experiences and, and uh, just to kind of to help people get a better understanding of you. And so when I was writing my bio for um, The Bluffs, The Bluffs mentions, you know, it's got some some subtle references or inferences to supernatural stuff. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put in my bio just a nod to that to say, look, I'm actually, some of this stuff is a bit inspired by true stories. But also, and I, and I knew that it would be like a, a red flag to a bull for a lot of my interviewers because they're like, oh, tell us about that. Yeah. But in my bio, I say, you know, things better not, not talked about. The reason I say that is because there's a rule of thumb when it comes to things that go bump in the night 
Uh, and that's if you start looking into this stuff, it starts looking back. Or if you start talking about this stuff, it starts talking back. And so I left it there just so people could, you know, have a bit of intrigue and also just know that, yeah, yeah, actually, I've got some stories. But the reason I don't talk about them is just because I don't want them to start looking back at me. Yeah. Well, let's not talk about it because I'm shit scared of that sort of stuff, mate. So we'll just leave that at that. We'll park that one. Um, do you still go into the bush quite regularly? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Yeah, all the time. Awesome. So it is a big part of you and mm. and your writing and things like that. Yeah, I actually spent. Um, so I'm supposed to be on book tour right now. I'm supposed to be in. Oh, this, I think this week was. I think this week was Melbourne actually. Yep. Well, might, might be Sydney. Anyway, obviously I can't do that because of COVID. So what I did was uh, last week I took. Um, this went down to Lake Sinclair. Yep. And stayed in the lodge there and did a bunch of hikes and just just tried to just ground myself back in back in the bush yep. because in my day job I live in Hobart now and I work in the city and I work with drug and alcohol um, stories in a real urban setting and then my book came out and it's just been awesome support again just a really overwhelming response from readers everyone's loving it the reviews have been awesome but I know for me that if I um, it wasn't that I was getting overwhelmed, but I knew that I had to just anchor myself a bit better. Yep. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm conscious of, of where all that stuff will take my mind, my headspace, if I don't give myself a chance to get away. Yep. So I just, yeah, spent some, some solid cash and got one of those nice lodge places down in Lake Sinclair and just, just settled myself. And it was, it was the best thing I did. Excellent. And then when I drove back, I took all the, all the four-wheel drive tracks, you know, they'll get there, went all in the bush just yep. to... Just to get amongst it again. Awesome. Um, what stage of your life did it look like writing was going to become a passion for you? Look, from the beginning, I can't really remember a time where I didn't want to be a writer, yep. to be honest. I mean, memories are hazy at the early age. I remember as a kid, if people asked what I wanted to do, I'd say be an inventor or yep. an engineer. That's what I really wanted to do. But deep down, my passion was writing and books. Uh, I loved books. I loved stories. I loved movies, video games. But books were my thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that was because I mean, back then the technology wasn't great for video games. <laughs> and I had Game Boy with Pokemon. That was it. Yeah. Um, and we only had one TV in the house, so if you wanted to watch a video, you had to like wrestle someone for it. <laughs> you had to book it. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but an actual novel, you could sit down and I could do that whenever I wanted all night if I wanted to. And mum and dad loved reading too and they'd read to me at night as a really little kid but I remember this moment in grade six Ridgely primary school and there was this series of books um by Tamara Pierce and they were like a fantasy series but they looked real they kind they looked pretty girly I think they're more marketed towards female audiences and we're probably not allowed to say that anymore but at the time <laughs> as yep. a little boy I'm like I don't want to read this book but yep. I had nothing else to do so I picked up um one of them in the library and I started reading it and it was just at, to the to that date, you know, other than Harry Potter, it was the best book I'd ever I'd ever sat down and read. Excellent. I hadn't read Harry Potter; I'd only been read Harry Potter by the teachers. So this was my yep. first my first experience with a story that actually really captivated me because yep. it was just a little bit. I was grade six. I was arriving into you know understanding myself and the world a bit better. You mm-hmm. know, on that cusp of of adolescence. Yeah. Um, read this book, absolutely loved it. So I sent her an email that the um 
the author because I just got, you know, grade six, had my email for the first time. I got a Tasmail account and I sent her an email. She's in New York. I said, I loved your book and one day I, th- I think I want to be a writer. Yep. And she wrote back and she said, hey, I get heaps of emails. I don't reply to them all, but I reply, I'm going to reply to yours because I'm quite charmed by what you said and I think you've got what it takes. And so that put something inside of me that said, all right, one day I'm going to do this for a living. One day I'm going to be a writer. Yep. Um, and then through, uh, I don't know, grade eight, I remember doing an, an assignment that was like a writing assignment and my teacher, Miss Henshaw, she gave me some really good feedback. She said, you're good at this. You could be a journalist. Awesome. Um, and I thought, oh, that's cool, but I want to be like a novelist. Yep. And then <laughs> grade nine, Parkland High School, I, I did really, really well on, on one of those English competitions. Yep. Oh, they, they, like, they did a newspaper story on me because I scored such a high mark. And people are like, you could do this for a living. I thought, you know what? I think you're right. I think I could. I'm on my way. Yep. And then grade 10, age 16, um, I was doing like, one of my options classes was literacy extended. Um, but there was a mix up with the timetable. So I couldn't do it and something else I had to do. So because of my English marks, the teachers agreed that I could do that course, that, that um, English extended option by myself in the library. Okay. And I could run my own project. Yep. Which I don't like at the time was pretty, <laughs> pretty rare. Yeah. And so I sat down and said, all right, I'm going to write a book. So grade 10, Parklands High School, English extended by myself in the libraries when I started writing my first book. Yep. And um, that was when I was hooked. I was like, yeah, this is... For the rest of my life, this is the goal I'm going to have is to, to be able to do this. And so you say that you wrote your first book, so that was 16 years of age. Mm. Yep. The thing that I think mainly resonated with me with your story and, and I think will resonate to a lot of our listeners is you wrote a, a book a year for 10 years without being published. Is that correct? Yeah. And you just kept going, didn't you? Just kept going. Yep. Just kept going. Yep. So tell me about those times. Obviously, there was a lot of knockbacks and rejection through that time. Yeah. So to get published, it's a journey in itself. There's lots of different um, uh, paths to publication now. And at the time, there was still self-publishing as well, if you wanted to do that. But for me, my goal um, for myself that I'd set was to be um, traditionally published by a publisher. To get published, you need a publisher to read your work and offer you a contract. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I thought, you know, oh, I've been told I'm good at this. I'm sure it'll be easy. So I wrote this book, sent it off to a publisher, didn't hear anything back from, from any of them, any of the ones I sent them to in Australia. Uh, so I sat down and then started writing my second book because um, I'd read somewhere that when you write your first book, you send it out for someone to read and then you start working on your second because right. the process is so slow. And I, I developed a real taste for writing. I really enjoyed it. I just It's just my favorite thing to do in the whole world. What I started doing a bit more research into what it takes to be published, a bit what it takes to, to make it, and there's other ways to get published that um, require you to have a literary agent. So instead of trying to send my work directly to publishers, I started trying to send it to literary agents and uh and not just ones in australia but also uk and and us because all the blog posts all the websites said that if you get a new york agent or an american agent you're in with a much better chance of of making it so i wrote my second book i thought it was pretty good even better than my last one sent it off to a bunch of agents didn't hear anything back um wrote my third book 
thought it was you know better again whole different story whole different feel sent that off to a bunch of agents um sent off to a bunch of publishers actually started getting some actual rejection letters this time right and saying all right you know not for us i was going to ask is is it as brutal as you just don't hear back or do you generally get feedback from people you generally don't get feedback okay. so i'm not but i mean there's some they'll tell you they'll say if you don't hear back from us assume it's a no mm-hmm. sometimes you'll get a um like a form email very very rarely do you get any form of actual feedback um, and so, but I started getting these form emails back at this stage. I guess maybe just that period of time they changed. There might, might have been a big shift in publishers, but I remember it being more my third book that I started getting some kind of actual responses. Yep. That, I mean, it's still negatives. Yep. And then, yeah, that was um, book three. I then proceeded to do that for the next year. The next year, wrote another book. The next year, wrote another book. Ten manuscripts, ten books I wrote over ten years. And, uh, Nine of them got completely rejected outright. No one was interested. Um, started getting more personalised rejections. Like one of them, one of them actually said, an Australian publisher said to me that your writing isn't special enough. Right. Actual feedback. Wow. Um, with my tenth book that I wrote, I finally got a little bit of interest from an agent in New York City, a really big time agent, um, and he wrote back and said, look, I really like this. Can you change this and this and send it back? That's called a revise and resubmit. That's like, um, that's the next best thing. If you get a revise and resubmit, that's rare as hell. You yep. know, you, you run with that. So is that basically saying we're interested, we want you to tweak a few things yep. and... Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you revise this and change it, then resubmit it to us, we'll consider it again. Yep. Um, wow. So I did that and then he still, he, he liked it, but he said, nah, it's not, not for me, but send me something else you've got. So that was my first 10 years and I got so close with the 10th one, so close and then just fell flat right at the finish line it felt. So it was, um, it was a hard time. It was, I just kind of became normal. It became normal for me to check my emails twice a day and I'll get these replies and I'd know they'd be rejections, you know. Sometimes you can see it just in the body of the email. But yep. <laughs> other times I just know in my heart and I said, I'm not ever going to open that. I'm going to wait a few days and... Sure enough, I'd open it a few days later. Yep, rejection. Just became a like a sec, like almost, you know, just another part of my day. Yeah, but it didn't stop you though. It obviously didn't affect you enough to say I'm not going to do this anymore. Was there ever a time when you did consider giving up on your dream? Or nah, nah. I mean, if I'm being realistic with myself, I wouldn't have let that thought enter in because I knew that if that thought came up. I'd spiral. It'd manifest and grow. Yeah. I mean, this is all I wanted to do. This is the only goal I'd ever had. And I knew that um, I was, I'm a very determined person. Um, If I see something, then I want it. Yep. Um, And I'd put so much time into it, but just all of my life goals and life dreams, I put on hold. So even though during this time I had done my degree, and I was working, I did my degree in counselling, which I was really passionate about. Um, I wasn't making any real steps to expand that as a career. Like, you know, I, I can I could do private practice if I wanted to. Like, I'm internationally accredited to be a life coach. Yep. But that, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer. Mm. And I had to choose. Do I, do I want to start my own practice? Do I actually want to run with this and, and make a career? Or do I want to keep being a writer? And I chose writing every time. Yep. 
and I still, even though I've, I've been lucky enough to make it with my 11th book, with the bluffs, um, and make it in a really big way, if it had taken me 50 manuscripts, I, I reckon I'd still be there doing it because Excellent. I just I wasn't going to give up until I got there. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, obviously you knew in your heart of hearts it was going to happen eventually if you just stuck at it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I had faith. Um, I, I knew that was what I was put on the planet to do. Yeah. So come hell or high water, and even just like doing the counselling degree, um, I had a choice of doing counselling or journalism, and and because I was learning enough about creativity to know that me as a person, I'm a real people person, uh, and I really care about people and I want to help people, but I'm also really fascinated by people's stories and really interested in how they run their lives and and how the world interacts with them. Should do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so that 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 helped my in the counselling room, working in the high schools, even especially working in the rehab, which was my most recent job. Just gave me even more of a hunger to be a novelist because yep. I thought there's stories and there's commun- connections out there that need to be heard. Yeah. So 2019, you finally get your deal with them um, with the bluffs. Was that right? Yeah, probably. I know in other years, I'm not good with dates. Yep. So it's been, what, a year since the bluffs came out and then I got the contract a year before that year, so 2019. Yep. Tell me about the emotions you received. I know that you can recite that email word for word. <laughs> I won't ask you to do that because you've probably done it a thousand times, but just tell me, I'm, I'm sure you can remember how you felt when you got that email. No, I can re- I'll recite the opening to it. So what, what happened was I'd finally landed in an agent and it had been a very long, oh, I don't know, probably three years with the agent, maybe two, I can't remember. The numbers all get mixed up. But I'd spent a long time working with this literary agent to get the bluffs up to scratch. Um, and we were hopeful, we were hopeful that we were going to get a contract. So she she said, uh, so how it worked is is we were a bit of a slow dance around each other, me and, and me and this agent. She hadn't officially signed me. She was still kind of really busy, had a lot of clients, but she was interested in the bluffs, in the manuscript she'd read. So she just wanted me to keep fixing it up before she'd officially sign me up, uh, which is fair enough. I guess she didn't owe me anything. She just was, um, she saw there was potential. She didn't have the time or the uh, resources to put towards me, but if I could get it ready, she'd sign me up. Yep. I think it was three years, maybe... Uh, two years. I don't know. I really the number. I'm not good with numbers. Mm. We'll talk about that in a sec. I've got I've got a learning disability with numbers. Yep. So uh, dates and stuff all gets mixed up in my head. But you just worry about words, mate. That's just like, well. I mean, words <laughs> just go well for me. But it took a long time. And then she, I remember waking up in my in my granny flat in Hobart, checking my email, and I had an email from her that said, "Yep, I want to sign you," and I've sent it off your submission. Like, so she kind of like, oh, yep, I'm signing you. I've already sent it off. By the way, can you sign the contract? You know, yep. just saying that way, I'm going to represent you. Yep. Then was within two weeks. I reckon it was probably a week and a half. I was sitting on my couch and I had this email come through and uh, it was from my agent and it just said, you know, I thought you'd like to, to read this email. And so she had forwarded me an email from the publisher who would become my publisher. And the publisher said, um, you know, just a quick note before the weekends to let you know that I have devoured the, the utterly brilliant and insanely compelling novel of Kyle Perry's. Um, it kept me up until 
2am, I'm completely addicted, what a story, <laughs> what a talent. And then it went off in this massive gushing email. And, and that moment, I'd spent, this was over 10 years now that I've been writing. And I'd spent so long waiting for this. I'd spent so long not knowing if I'd ever make it. I'd spent so long not knowing if this was, what am I doing? Why am I wasting my time? Knowing I'd get there eventually, but how long? And like, how much should I put into it? But more than that, there's, there's, a, there's a creative wound that happens when you get so many rejections. You, there's, a, there's a sense that I don't have anything good to say. I don't have anything good to contribute. No one wants to see my art. No one wants my books. No one likes my characters. No one likes me. That, all those kind of things go with it. It's inevitable. Yep. And so to have this one email from a major publisher say that my manuscript had kept them up until 2 a.m. These people read thousands of books. Mm. That, that moment... The way I describe it when people ask is, is is I describe it like one of those big metal gates on a castle in a medieval movie, like Lord of the Rings, the big metal gate that comes clanging down. They call it a portcullis, I think. It felt like that happened inside of me. This big metal gate clanged down right through the center of me and it was on fire. And it felt like everything up until now was done this was a new thing i was stepping into it felt like everything was worth it I'd, I'd built something i'd achieved something and now finally in this one moment this one email i'd i'd i had arrived and i was I, I tried to like i wanted to cry but i couldn't um because i was so emotional everything felt tight i fell under the ground i rolled on the ground i stood up i reread <laughs> the email i'm like freaking out in my lounge room no one's there to share it with me but that was probably okay because i couldn't handle anyone right then and i thought this is and there was no, there was no moment where i thought this isn't real because i knew eventually it would happen it was yep. just like finally yep i can rest yep it wasn't like oh my god this has happened it was like yes this yeah. this has finally happened it was always going to happen yeah yeah well i mean that that part of me is like yes and then the rest of me that had always been timid and afraid and, and worried that i wasn't good enough was like gone in yeah. an instant yeah that's awesome do you remember what the first thing that you did after that was did you go and ring all your mates or did you go and hit the piss or what, what was the <laughs> what was the go afterwards no i don't i would have i would have um called my mum would have been the first thing i did or probably on the family group chat um it's it's a bit of a blur that night because all these emotions, you know, twenty well, like twenty six, twenty six years of emotions all in one moment. Yep. Um, probably longer. Than, I can't remember, man. But a lot of years of emotions all in that one moment. I don't remember exactly what I did, but I know that I didn't share it with many people. Um, because first of all, we hadn't signed a contract yet. Yep. Um, second of all, barely anyone knew that this was what I wanted to do with my life barely any of my friends knew that my secret ambition was to be a novelist yep. barely anyone knew that so it wasn't like something I could put on my Facebook because <laughs> no one, everyone, first question people would ask is like well, you, since when do you write books yeah <laughs> yep. and I suppose too you also have to defend yourself of well have you been published yet well why not that sort of thing so exactly it's yeah. like I mean telling someone you want to be a writer is kind of like saying you want to be a movie star yep. you know people are like oh that's nice and they're like, it's hard to explain to them. No, you don't understand. This is inside of me more than anything else. Yeah. And I think there needs to be a lot more encouragement for people to do that. I've just gone back to what you said there before. It was interesting in, in your younger days how important 
the messages from our mentors are you know you got that email back from that author in New York and your teacher saying to you at a young age you know you can do this mm. I just think how many kids fall through the cracks that do have these beautiful talents because they're not nurtured and they're not told that you know you should chase your dreams or you know you can do this rather than oh that's stupid don't waste your time you know pick this up and, and roll with this instead mm. um, I just think it's so important with kids to, to nourish that that ability to dream and ability to chase that dream I know I certainly try to do it with any young person that I, I come mm. into, into contact with, but, yeah, I think it's something that, that more people should do because how many talents are lost to the world because mm. they're not nurtured at that young age. But thankfully, you were. I guess part of it is the fact that I was aware that if I told people, if I told too many people, they wouldn't nurture it. Yep. You know, growing up on the northwest coast, little boy from the country... You, you, a lot of I mean I love my friends and my family and my community and all that but I mean I knew that if I was to go out there and say oh this is you know what do you want to be when you grow up Kyle I want to be a novelist I knew yeah. they would be like oh really mate like yeah. it's time to grow up yeah. you know, I knew that would be the response so I had to guard that you know my family knew a few close friends knew that was it yeah. no one else I didn't I didn't trust anyone else with my destiny yeah it's um it's interesting you say that and that's again one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast because being in a small community you're actually not the first guest that I've had on that has said that it's really hard to dream big in mm. this area again it, I'm just hopeful that that's one of the messages that, that this podcast and ones that we've done previously get out there is you, you can dream big mm. um, you know and, and and you need to dream big and you need to chase your dreams even if people say that it's silly and you're not going to do it then you know just keep doing it if it's something that you want to do you know, make the sacrifices that you have to because you can you can go big from a small place if that makes sense. So, mm. um, so with the bluffs, um, can you give us like a quick roundabout overview of the bluffs, like as far as the, the plot of it and what the purpose is of the book, the the outline of it? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So at its heart, it's about a guy called Murphy who lives up in uh, the base of the Great Western Tears. It's a fictional town called Limestone Creek. Yep. Uh, he's a Weed dealer, he used to be a landscaper, but then he lost his wife and he went, he spiraled a bit, so he became a weed dealer. He's got a teenage daughter, um, just doing his best. And how the story kicks off is that his daughter and three of her friends go missing while on a uh, school camping trip up in the Great Western Tears. Mm-hmm. That's where the story kicks off. Uh, Murphy then becomes one of the prime suspects. He's trying to work out what happened to the girls. Then there's two other characters that join the book. We've got Eliza, who is the teacher who was with the girls when they went missing. So she's desperate to find out what happened to them too. And she joins in like the hunt and the search. And then there's the detective, uh, Detective Con, and who's brought in from Launceston. He's a Sydney sider, but he's moved to Launceston. He's brought in to try and oversee the, uh, the case as well. What makes the case of the missing girls um, all the more interesting is that there's a, an urban legend of a figure called the Hungry Man mm. who back in 1985 um, was allegedly he'd taken six other girls from that area and uh, that's where the story kicks off and that's the uh, the main the main journey of the story is Murphy's and it's all about trying to get his daughter back yep excellent um, and just from from doing my research you said that a lot of the characters in the book are based on real people and real mm. stories that you've heard is that common for a lot of writers to do that do you know or is it just something little twist that you've put to your writing I don't think many writers have a day job quite like mine yep 
Um, I mean, I'm sort of sweeping generalisation. A lot of writers are journalists, so they'd have they'd hear awesome stories. Yep. So I know that I've got one of my friends, Catherine Firkin. She's a great Australian um, crime novelist, and she uh, she's a, like done a lot of journalism, um, and she she relies on some good stories for her 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 characters. For me, though, I um, part of counselling is talk therapy, and part of my role, my placement was done. I just stopped the road in in Alveston Bridge program. Yep. Um, and what I learnt in in the counselling room up there, um, one client especially inspired Murphy because that was the first time I realised that um, weed dealers are freaking pretty cool people. Mm. <laughs> like they're actually good stories. They, well, they just a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't come to drug dealing with any malicious intent mm. or they don't come there because they really want to mm. too. they just fall into it because they're yep. trying to do the best they can everyone's just trying to fill a need and this guy um, he was like he did other stuff as well that wasn't wasn't the reason he was in um, the, the rehab program it was for a different substance but he was telling me about you know his cannabis dealing business and I was like man you're a legend like I don't I don't smoke weed but you're you're, um, you're not a, the kind of monster that I always thought drug dealers work um and so that that changed that reframed stuff for me and then um i, I mentioned in, in the acknowledgements of my book that i just had some good chats with my tattooist and about you know he's from smithton and he could tell me some good stories about stuff going on yeah. down there and <laughs> so that that inspired true stories the counseling room stuff inspired the true stories and then in the book there's heaps of stuff around um, the teenage girls their interactions with each other school life social media online bullying and all of that all of that was inspired by stuff that was going on in the high schools that i was working at at the time yeah does that help you to write about a particular character because you can actually visualize them in your own mind you've spoken to this person you you actually know them does that you feel a connection to them yeah yeah that's what that's what i um I, i i do is i Sometimes I'll have a character in mind and I'll literally name them after the person they're based off. Yep. So, for example, book three, um, I'm based, the main character of book three, which I'm currently writing, is a bricklayer. And, yep. and I've, at the moment, he's, he's named right after my bricklayer friend because I'm just trying to capture everything about his mentality, the way he talks, the way he moves, yep. his insights. Um, because I think people come to, the thing, a lot of writers, I think, um, don't understand that readers aren't coming for events or plots. They're coming for characters. All, all stories, all good stories are about characters. Yep. Um, and a superpower of mine now because of my background, because of my qualification, is that character is something that i am really got my finger on the pulse of. Yep. Um, and I know it's not from anything, any hard work on my part. It's just I've <laughs> just been lucky enough to be surrounded by these good yeah. characters. Yep. So the next book will have a podcast called Brendan in it, I'm assuming. Oh, I mean, <laughs> it will do now. Now it's brought up. <laughs> Look out for that. Um, just on characters, one that I was really interested in, if, you, if you're if happy to tell the story, is Con. Because mm. I think Con was uh, somebody, a, a police officer that picked you up in South Africa or something. Is that right? He's not a police officer. Um, he's actually, oh, I think he's... I can't remember what he does. It might be an engineer, something to do with mining. Okay. Um, but yeah, his name's Con Badenhorst. He's a South African. And what I did was, when I was in South Africa, um, on my way to Mozambique, 
I'd organised through a friend of a friend, we're all, all kind of travelling together, that this guy, Con Badenhorst, was going to pick me up from the Johannesburg airport. When I got to the, the Johann airport, I was delayed. My flight was delayed by a lot. Um, lights were turning off. Things were shutting down. And if there's one place you don't want to be caught, <laughs> it's, it's Johan. Yeah. And and I was looking around. I was jet lagged. I was had this massive backpack. I was pretty concerned. And then I'm like, oh man, I've lost him. I've got no way to contact him. I'm like three hours too late. He's gone. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Who's going to mug me? And then I hear this voice, this South African voice say, you know, hey, Kyle. And I turn around and Con's big boy. He's got these really startling blue eyes, really kind of awesome. En- like he's got a pet tarantula. Like he's got this <laughs> awesome energy. And I just remember the moment I saw him, it was like all the tension just rushed out of me. And I thought, oh, it's okay. Con's here. So when I was crafting my detective character, because um, I don't know anything about being a te- detective or a cop, but I knew what I wanted to achieve was the moment that he stepped onto the page, I wanted my reader to feel the same way I felt when I saw Con in that airport. Yeah, it's going to be okay. Yeah, I wanted to think, oh, it's okay, Con's here. So I just I anchored that in energy in his name, and then I just ended up keeping his name because names can't be copyrighted, so I'm, yep. <laughs> I'm going to use it. <laughs> awesome. Um, so what about The Deep? Again, just give us a little bit of an overview of the, the storyline there. Yeah, yeah. So The Deep's... Mainly about a guy called Mac, who is the outcast and youngest son of a drug dynasty. It's set on the uh, east coast of Tasmania, down Eagle Hawk Neck area, in a fictional town called Shacktown. Mm-hmm. So Mac is um, just did a stint in prison. He's been bailed. He's got strict bail conditions, and he's trying to get his life back on track. Um, no one's really given him a shot. Where the story begins is that his nephew, Forrest, who has been missing for seven years, washes up on the shore. Forrest is actually the heir to the whole criminal family. So what kicks off then is a lot of questions around, okay, where have you been all this time? Where are your parents? Because they've gone missing too. And how does this affect the town? How does this affect the drug dynasty? That's the first question that gets asked right at the beginning of the book, and then it kicks off into a whole bunch of, of action, of mo- momentum, of movement that's a bit like Underbelly meets Breaking Bad um, with a bit of piracy on, on the side. There's another kingpin that's coming in to try and take over the business. There's, yep. uh, there's a body count that keeps rising. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's been a lot of fun to write. Yep. Um, it's a bit darker than The Bluffs, would you say? No, uh, they're both pretty dark. Okay. They're both pretty gritty in their own way. Yep. People, um, different people have found The Deep scary because I talk about the ice industry mm-hmm. and I talk about it from authority because I was working in a men's rehab and yep. I learned more about the drug industry than I ever really wanted to. Yep. Whereas a lot of other people, um, you know, some couldn't even read the bluffs because they've got teenage daughters and okay. they're like, you know, I can't even touch this. So yep. they're both gritty and dark in their own way. So with your writing, where, whereabouts do you write or what? how does that come about? And I'm, I'm going to ask the, the questions of someone that's very ignorant. I've never written a book and I don't know a lot about it. Does it just come to you is it like writing a song do you think oh yep I'm, i want to put that down you know quick stop what i'm doing i gotta write that down really quickly or do you actually have to set time aside to write or do you write a book from go to woe in one one go yeah look it's different 
it's case by case. Every chapter can be different. For yep. me, I don't like to plot that much, which means writing for me looks like sitting down at the laptop and just, just having a crack. Just yep. shoot from the hip. Start from chapter one and write through to the last chapter. Um, how you write stuff, you go back and you rewrite it. Um, you write another chapter, you realize that doesn't fit anymore. You go back and rewrite the first chapter. Sometimes you do a bit of plotting. Sometimes you get some feedback. Um, for me, I work best late at night and in like big chunks. I struggle yeah. to do little chunks. I need to sit down and do a big chunk. I get into a bit of a trance, a bit of a rhythm, just let the words flow and then I have to go back later on and, and edit the hell out of it. Yeah. Um, what I've had, to ch- I've had to change my process though because um, I ended up developing carpal tunnel whilst writing The Deep. I'm um, trying to meet deadlines. Yeah. And so now I can't write in cafes or on my couch or, you know, I used to drive up to the mountain and sit in my car and write. I can't do that anymore. It damages okay. my arms. Right. The only place I can write is at a desk with my fancy ergonomic keyboard that I'd be lost without. Yep. Um, and I'm trying to, to learn how to plot as well because in, in the writing world, there's two types of writers. They call them plotters or pantsers. And so plotters are people who plot and pantsers are those who fly by the seat of their pants. So I've historically been someone who flies by the seat of their pants. It works well for me, but it takes a long bloody time. Yep. So I'm trying to learn to plot just to save a bit of time. But So plotting saves going back and editing as much, is that right? Well, theoretically, it's supposed to. Yep. The reason that I'm trying it now is because with The Deep, I ended up having to cut and change around 60,000 words. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't a good time. That was the next thing I was going to ask you. How long does it take, on average, to write a book? Look, it's it's different. It depends. I don't know. Like, I wrote the first draft of The Bluffs in three months. Yep. And that was while I was working, you know. Yep. It's when about the time I was, um, met you, I was writing it then. Yep. Um, but that first draft would be unrecognisable from what you read now in the bookshop. Yep. You go pick up a copy of The Bluffs, and you, pick, you looked at the copy of my manuscript, you wouldn't be able to tell the you know they're the same thing yeah the deep uh i seriously started writing that about a year ago so that only took about a year to write i think um but that being said the moment i signed the contract two years ago i knew i'd have to i'd, I'd sign a two book contract so i knew i'd have to write the deep eventually so i already kind of had it in the back of my mind growing i wrote the deep probably a bit quicker just because i was working um in the in the rehab but then even though I'd written it quicker, I still had to, you know, cut and change 60,000 words. So it wasn't quicker, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're talking about working in the rehab. So you, you obviously still work in that drug and alcohol space as well at the moment and, and you know, helping um, young people and helping people move past their barriers is, is initially where we connected. Mm. Um, why did you get into it initially? What happened was I came back from Canada Um and I was just drifting around the house. And uh, I mean, I, I got my old job back. Like I just, I'd done a backpacking thing in Canada. I got my old job back. I um, was working in a call center. Uh, and then uh, mum's like, well, why don't you go back to uni? Why don't you do a course or something? So I had started uni. I'd, I'd been doing um, psychology, but I suffered from pretty bad burnout right at about age between 18 to to 21 I was in a really bad way with burnout Um, 
So I, I was a bit shy about going back to uni because I'd, I'd been had a bad experience with it. That, that, that wasn't what caused me to burn out, but um, it definitely didn't help. So I thought, all right, I'll give it a shot. I looked up um, psychology and then I found this diploma of counselling. Now, psycho- psychology and counselling are very different. Counselling is more the practical talk therapy skills, the actual what happens in a psychotherapy room, whereas psychology covers a whole range of other stuff as well. Yep. So I said, oh, well, I'll do this diploma of counselling first just to get my skills up and, and just to, you know, I know I can still get a job as a counsellor. I did that diploma and I just came alive. I loved it. Everything about it matched me to a T. The way that you worked with people, the, the skills you could use, the conversation, um, just the way to, to have a conversation and deeply listen to someone and just how to help people without having to offer advice, just letting people talk about what they want to talk about, giving them some reflections, helping them see their blind spots. It was like a whole, it was almost like some kind of arcane art that I discovered. I loved it so much that I thought I'm going to do the, I'll do the, the whole bachelor's degree. So I did my degree in counseling. I did a kind of a major in coaching as well. So I came out with this joint degree in counseling coaching and I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, I applied for a job as a youth worker at Burnie High School, um, straight out the back back of it. Uh, I didn't. I was unsuccessful in getting that role, um, mainly just because, well, not mainly. The guy who got it absolutely deserved it, but the guy who got it had already been in the role. You know how the, the education department mm. has to re-advertise roles. Yep. Um, so he, you know, he's really good at his job. It's good that he got it. But the principal said, "Look, we." we really want to give you a job still. Mm. So she, um, she's the one who made some suggestions to the space program, which is a school for disengaged youth. Yep. Um, and then she's like, we want you. You could work there as well. That's four days of work. Um, what do you think of that? And I said, yeah, come bring it on. Because I, I did a lot of youth work kind of as a kid. I did, I'd lead it like Riverbend Camp Clayton camps and yep. always been part of youth group and like our kids group at church. Mm-hmm. I was always just doing that stuff and, and now that I had a skill set I felt like I actually could help people I was like yeah sign me up so that's how I got into it um, and I loved it absolutely loved it working yeah. with um, been able to like meet kids where they're at um, been able to find out about you know how sheltered I was mm. it's and an it's, eye opener isn't it oh mate it's just it's just you don't you, you can't you can never walk down the street the same way again mm-hmm you can't you can't not see it. Yeah. You can't not feel it when you see a kid, you know, that you you even just see in the way they dress, the way they they walk now, you're like, "Oh mate, the stories you could tell me." It's funny, yeah, I do the same thing when you're driving along, you can see a kid walking walking down the road and some of them um look tough or look rough and tough, but you can tell well, I can just by looking at them that no, they're okay. Whereas then you can see another one yeah, they have a walk or they might be poking their chest out a little bit more or something or that. You think, no, you've got your, your barrier up, you've got your defences up, you've, mm. you're a pretty hard case or something going on there. Mm. But yeah, I've, I can relate to that because um, you, you certainly look at kids on the side of the road differently when you've, when you've listened to a few of their stories and things like that. And, mm. and also, it's for me, I know before I got into youth work, you'd see a bunch of kids on the street corner and you'd probably be a little bit... Um, defence is probably not the right word but you'd probably be a little bit wary of them mm. whereas now you probably know how to approach them they're not gonna yeah. they, they might yell something out at you or something like that but I think 
we understand now why they're going to do that and mm. they just want a little bit of engagement or they want someone just to notice them mm. Um, mm. because you know a lot of them just get no attention as well so mm. yeah that was one thing that i found of and you know even just going down to skate parks and things like that usually a before I'd be a bit wary of places like that, but not at all now because mm. you think no, there's some really cool stories floating around down there, and some really hard stories too. But mm. I think once you have that understanding of all kids just want that attention and you know want to be loved and want to be listened mm. to, that's how they get their attention. So sometimes it's nothing personal; they're just trying to get your acknowledgement. That's right. I mean, they're all every kid's just trying to fill a need. Yeah, that's all they're trying to do in the Absolutely. best way that they can. Yep, they just want to belong, don't they? Belong mm. somewhere. What would you say is the hardest thing about working in that space that you work in? The, the hardest thing is the fact that the human, you know, the human soul, the human body, the human mind is not designed to be exposed to that much trauma, trauma. day in, day, yep. day out. So I, um, I'm going to be honest, I'm getting tired now, um, even though I've only been in the game less than five years, I guess. Um, uh, the, the, the trauma stories... The, you know when I in the rehab I'd hear a torture story every Tuesday mm. um, and it's, it gets a bit much you, your heart your heart starts to build up a callus um, and I wrote I wrote a piece for the Griffith Review just about how I noticed um, I really needed to cut back on my actual counseling work because things would people would start saying stuff to me and I just wouldn't I wouldn't care like there was this one time and this is this is the moment I knew something. Well, this is the moment I knew that the role was starting to affect my my heart. Was when I was, you know, I was somewhere and they were talking about this school, and a kid at the school had killed himself. Um, and it wasn't a school around here; it was one down south. They're like, "Oh yeah, this guy killed himself," and I just said, "Oh, that's the circle of life." And I and that was, <laughs> you know, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought. Where the hell did that come from? Mm. You're a youth worker. You're a counsellor. You're the one person who should not be saying this. Mm. But I'd just been through pretty a pretty hellish experience at my job. Um, we'd lost some. We'd lost one of our guys from the rehab. There was you just you kind of when you're exposed to the dark depths of what humans do to each other. But more to the point, just what the, the humans that fall through the cracks. Mm. Like all this bad stuff happens out there, but when you're just constantly surrounded by it, you, you can't cope. Your brain starts to shut down, shut off. Your heart just stops caring. Mm. So I, after that moment, I transitioned out of an actual therapy role and now I'm more in a coordination over oversight role for people with lived experience. Um, but that brings its own challenges because even though I'm not counselling these people, I'm still, I've still got to sit down and, and hear their stories. I've still got to support them through stuff. I'm yep. still constantly awash in that, that kind of data. <laughs> I'm mm. constantly hearing these stories. Yep. And, and it's just, you know, thank God that I've got my books yep. because if I didn't have that, I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure how I'd, I'd get through the day. Yeah. It's a bit of a release for you. Yeah. It's a release. It's, it's a, it's a way to make sense of the world. Yeah. Um, and I, and I love the industry. I love my job. I love it. And I don't want to leave it yet, yep. but I know the writings on the wall that for people like you and I, with the roles that we did and we do, you can only do it for a certain amount of time before you physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, you need a break. Mm-hmm. And I'm approaching that pretty fast. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, again, I can I can relate to that. It was one of those things you always found. I always found that you had to keep that balance of how much you you needed to care. You didn't want to tip it too far to one side, as in caring too much or not caring enough. Um, what I mean by that is that um, you didn't want to care too much to the point where it actually affected you um, emotionally, that you were taking too much home and it was actually affecting you in an, in an adverse way. Um, but on the other side of it, you you wanted to care enough to help the young person so um you know there'd probably be people out there unfortunately that that don't care about young people so you need a certain amount of care but at the same time you don't want to tip it too far over the other edge because then you also fall into that dangerous territory of i think solving the young person's problems um you're actually solving the problems for them rather than giving them the tools to actually do it themselves you sort of had to yeah keep that balance make sure you didn't tip one way or the other but I can relate to that too because we used to get a lot of um, background stories and some of the stories on our kids were horrific mm. and torture and things that mm. they'd been through, you know, sexually, physically, emotionally. Um, and I'd, I wouldn't give details, but I'd come home and speak to my wife about it and she'd say, how can you hear these stories? But because you become so used to them, it's like, okay, here's another mm. sexual abuse story or here's another physical abuse or a torture story, things like that. And I used to, yeah, I used to go to bed some nights thinking, why doesn't it affect you mm. more? But it was probably because I'd my heart had become a bit calloused, as mm. you were saying. So, yeah, I think you probably do have a bit of a time limit in that space before you do need a little bit of a mm. break and to go back to it. But then on the other side of it, I've also seen youth workers that I think sometimes can do more damage by caring too much and trying to, trying to solve too many of their problems mm. For the young person, rather than giving them the tools to actually solve them themselves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was always that balance of, of being able to to listen to their story, but at the same time help them mm. come up with their their way to work through it. Um, what do you reckon is the biggest issue facing people in that space at the moment? I mean, there's so many. Straight away, honestly, the first thing I want to say is sleep deprivation. I think that as a society, it's absolutely terrifying how little we respect our need to sleep or how much we prioritize it. And yet all the evidence tells us how important it is. And so what we know is that when you exercise, eat well and sleep, you can shake off stuff a lot easier than normal. Whereas what we find in the drug and alcohol space is that a lot of people who use drugs, what they're using them for is to regulate trauma. So what, what, what it means by that is, is that they've had really traumatic stuff in their life their bodies and their their kind of defense mechanisms are always kind of on edge. They're really wired. They need a, a way to either deal with that, mask it, or calm themselves down to regulate themselves. And so they turn to substance because, of course, you would. It's 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 anyone would if there was a way to do it a shortcut. Mm. Whereas in reality, if it's almost this lack of sleep that's really affecting that whole cohort, um, and they can't sleep. Like one of my really good mates. He struggles a lot with alcohol and he's also got insomnia and so he can't sleep and we know that sleep affects the way our, our emotions regulate. We know that when you sleep, when you have a good productive REM cycle sleep, emotion and memory get separated from each other. There's this new research that says if you have a really bad memory or a really bad event, when you sleep, um, you, your brain kind of takes the emotion and takes the memory and puts them in separate places. Okay. Whereas if you don't sleep or you're not getting good enough sleep, that memory and that emotion are always entangled. Yeah. So, I mean, that's straight off the bat. I'm, I always tell people, even people who want writing advice, I'm saying, just get a good night's sleep. It'll change your writing, change your mentality, change your emotion. But then outside of that, we've got um, this the, the isolation 
epidemic. We've got people who either don't prioritize social or people who don't fit in, people who can't find a tribe, whose family are not their biggest supporters. Um, when you, we, we need friends. We, we need, people can't do things alone. Yeah. Um, as much as we like to think we can. Um, like I had a moment the other day, something was kind of stressing me out. Um, I didn't think there was a solution. I told my friend about it. He called me up and like within five minutes of him talking me through it, I felt great. That All that stress I'd had was gone out the window. Mm. And it was just a good reminder to me how lucky I am to have friends I can call on. Mm. Whereas if you've got people that don't have healthy friends or don't have good friends, don't have a society, don't have a community, you know, they don't have you know, a, a community group they can go to. They don't have a church that they go to. They don't have a social group, you know, mates at the footy. People that don't have that, they don't have people they can call on to mm. help deal with those those things as they come up. And, of course, they're going to turn to drugs and alcohol. It's yep. the easiest answer. Yeah. And I think, as I was saying there before, everyone wants to belong. And if, if the only people that accept you are people that are doing dodgy things, then, again, you're going to gravitate because you feel like you belong somewhere and, mm. and you get caught in that cycle. So... Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've we've spoken a lot about your your challenge of getting published. Is there any other challenge that you've overcome in life that you wanted to talk about and how you overcame it? Yeah, definitely. the 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 burnout was massive. So when I was grade twelve, um, started grade twelve, um, I was doing a lot of stuff. I was uh, grade eleven. I'd been a straight A student, straight literally straight A student in grade eleven internally anyway, external not. You know, some of the external markers were a bit dodgy, but internally, straight A's. And into we step into grade twelve. I was the lead in the in the college musical. I'd just been a lead a lead in the um, Burning Music Society musical. Like I was really into my performing, and yep. I was um, doing my diploma on my saxophone because I've been getting sax lessons since I was a kid. Um, I think I was doing karate. I was doing like trying to do other sport I was just doing everything something every night and there was so much expectation on me because in grade 10 I was ducks to the school so I mean these are all great things I'm like not complaining but they all came together and resulted in burnout and how burnout looked for me is that I was at a youth group thing down at the church um, having a good time started to feel a bit wobbly I walked out into the kitchen and I just collapsed wow hit, hit the deck they called the ambulance, took me to the hospital. I was in hospital for three days. I couldn't walk. I could barely move. Um, I got home and my whole life changed from that moment. I couldn't I couldn't walk without a walking stick. I couldn't handle strong emotions. I couldn't handle loud noises or bright lights. I just changed. Like my whole personality changed overnight. I went from this high, high-flying, high-achiever, bubbly social you know everyone knew me i knew everyone else having the time of my life to all of that being ripped away literally overnight for me how that presented for the rest of that year was i did like a i didn't even finish grade 12 um i did part-time program i was diagnosed with chronic fatigue but that's kind of just the title you give people when they're coming through burnout Mm -hmm. The next year, I tried to go to uni because, of course, that was my goal, go to uni. Um, I was stuck to the school. Of course, I'm going to go to uni. Got halfway through and crashed again. The year after that was the worst, one of the worst years of my life because I was just homebound the whole whole year. I couldn't leave. And so burnout as, a, you know, as an injury, we know a lot more about it now. Back then, um, 
you know, list. Yeah, no, there wasn't much to talk about, and I was pretty close about what had happened to me. I didn't tell people the emotions that had led up to it. I didn't talk about the expectation I felt. I definitely, you know, mum and dad tried to tell me time and time again, slow down, say no, but I just felt bulletproof. Yep. And then, yeah, it all crashed, it all left. It, it ruined my life, to be honest. Um, then it wasn't until 21 that found my healing and and, and started to come back. Um, I'll never be 100%. The way that burnout works is that it always lingers some way. I'll only ever probably be about 75 80% of my physical capacity. Um, but... But I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm grateful for what I went through because it did change the way I saw the world. It changed the way it kept me kind of closer to home. My plans had been to move to Hobart, but that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that changed my career and then also gave me some really strong emotions to write from and to write about. Yeah. So that first, yeah, I mean, that year um, at home, all that I had was my writing. I couldn't leave. Couldn't, 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 definitely couldn't drive. Couldn't couldn't walk um the 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 few moments that i had were like those moments like going up the mountain where i'm like okay i've got a day of energy there's no one around i've only only time i can do stuff is if i go at my own pace yeah the moment someone else i couldn't walk with anyone else if someone said let's go for a bush walk i couldn't do it unless i went my own pace yeah unless i stopped when i could stop and that held me back for ages um but you know it's just part of the journey and, and now that I've I've grown through it and you know, it's 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 all it'll always be kind of a thorn in the side. It's always gonna be a bit of an Achilles heel for me. But um yeah, I know I'm I'm still everything I've achieved, I'm you know, I'm I'm I made it, I earned it, I worked hard for this. I'm again happiest happiest man in Tasmania. I've got yep. my first book, it's been nominated book of the year five separate times. Yep. five different awards you know my second book's only just come out but it's already getting better reviews from the first one so yep. i'm stoked no i was going to say look you've achieved some really great things through your writing you, you say that thorn in the side is there something that's still unfulfilled or something that you felt like you failed at or no just be, the nature of burnout is it comes with adrenal fatigue oh okay so more of a physical yeah thorn in the side. yeah yep. literally i just feel i'm only uh my physical capacity is only ever going to be 80% of what I could do. Yep. Which, you know, that 20% starts to add up after a while. Writing's a physical thing. You've got to sit up straight. You've mm. got to focus. Your brain's got to be working. Yep. Talking to people about your book, publicity, you know, you get sleepless nights when, you've, when you're on the road. Like, all of that adds up. Yep. And all of that, I've just constantly got to mitigate because I think, well, you know, you've, you've burned out. In my job, I've never been able to work full time. I can't work full time because of this this burnout injury. Yeah. So every job I've had has always been a part time job, um, just because I need to at least have one day off a week. Otherwise, yep. I can't sustain it. Just to recover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've been given, and who did it come from? Best piece of advice. Um, one that that I've been leaning back on is just that what's what's for you won't go by you. So rather than getting stressed about missing out or stressed that that you've missed it, uh, it's not, no, what's, what's for you won't go by you. So I I rest in that a lot. Um, so you're right where you're meant to be type thing, just yeah. have faith in the course. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Trust the journey. Yep. Trust the journey. That That's good advice. And then the other good advice 
Um, I don't know if you'd say this is, is advice, but but um, when I was in Burnie, I was a few few years ago. Actually, when I got, got to know you, I was um, getting personal training from um, Ryan Summers Fryzies. So runs a personal training business in Burnie, and just what I learned from that man about how strength training and how exercise changes the way the world works for you mm. that's that 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 changed my trajectory too especially because of this in like the burnout stuff but just what i learned from him about just how how much looking after yourself and your body and focusing on 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 exercise changes everything and so that's why you know that's why people ask for writing advice i say go to the gym you know, people want emotional advice. Get a good night's sleep. You know, eat well. Yeah. All this stuff is actually the first thing you need to do, and we know that from mental health. Well, like, I, you know that from any 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 counselor worth their salt. It's going to tell you that the bedrocks of mental health is diet, exercise, and sleep. Yeah. Um. What advice would you give someone wanting to follow the same path as you? So, if there's any young budding authors out there that are listening to this, what's the one key thing that you'd tell them to focus on or do? <laughs> I mean, there's the, there's the general stuff like, don't give up, stick at it. Um, but what I would say is, be smart and be flexible. So what's interesting about my story is that those first ten books I wrote, they're all young adult novels. They're all like f- fantasy books. They were fantasy sci-fi um, young adult stories. The book that's put me on the map, the book that's made me a nationally acclaimed best-selling author is a crime book. I only did that because I was willing to take a chance and be flexible and try something different. So if if someone had said, oh, just, you know, to me, just, just stay hungry, stay determined, I could have been writing young adult books for the next 20 years and not got anywhere. But the fact that I, I took a chance to try something different, yep. that was my break. Well, mate, that's pretty much all I've got for you for now. Um, I could sit and talk to you all day. I'm sure we could do a podcast for five hours, but um, I know you're a busy man, and I certainly appreciate your time. And um, what's what's the future hold for you? I know you've got one more book to write. Is there anything else on the horizon past that? No, well, I mean, I've got two more books I'm contracted for, but when I first signed my first contract, when when Penguin flew down to meet me, um, the the kind of request was, hey, can you write a book a year for us? Yep. So the rest of my life, um, as long as I keep kicking goals, I'll be able to keep writing and writing. So the goal at the moment is just to, to keep doing that, just to be a writer for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm living the dream. Awesome. Good on you, mate. We'll keep smashing it. You know, I can't wait to see what, what you do in the future, but I know it's going to be awesome. And like I say, your story is one that um, inspires me and I know it'll inspire a lot of people because I know in our time that we'd spent together in the youth work space, obviously I had no idea that you were you were trying to be a writer and, you know, that you'd receive those knockbacks and, and, and getting getting knocked down and getting up, getting knocked down, getting up. I think it's just a great story of mm. persistence. And as I say, I'm, I'm lucky to call you, mate. Um, yeah. And I hope that I do see a lot more in the, in the future, mate. But... Um, all the best with it and for anyone that's listening obviously the bluffs and the deep are available in all good bookstores and you can get them online as well um i'm not clever enough to be able to reel off all the names and things like that but i'm sure if people search them, they'll be able to find them so um you won't be disappointed so thanks for coming in mate and thanks man all the best for the future thank you cheers mate thanks for listening people i hope you enjoyed that chat as much as i did I reckon it'd be hard not to be inspired and motivated by Kyle's story. Imagine the strength and self-belief it takes to be knocked back that many times and keep going 
and the jubilation he must have felt when he finally achieved what he'd worked so hard for. It's unbelievable. I loved also chatting about youth work and the drug and alcohol work too. I hope it's educated a few people on what happens in that space. As we spoke about, if you want to get your hands on a copy of Kyle's books, The Bluffs and The Deep, which I certainly will be, you can find them at all good bookstores and probably at the shit ones too, as well as on Apple Books. We'll catch up soon with another awesome guest. 